This menu from the uh, Paris restaurant during the siege, dated 25th of December 1870, and even says 99th day of the siege. This is a verbatim. And you've got in amongst the hors d'oeuvres, uh, radishes, stuffed donkey's head, uh, soups, including elephant consommé, entrees, fried goujon, roast camel, English style. I don't know if that's a, a bit of a tip It just there. means there's no imagination involved in yeah. cooking it. Just, it's just, it's just, just a roast. <laughs> it's just a roast. <laughs> nice, I'm sure it's delicious. Jugged kangaroo and roast bear chops. Poor old bear. Hello and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton and with my old friend James Jackson we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Ever since man first planted a seed and grew a crop, another man decided it was a lot less hassle to steal that crop than grow his own. Thus, it was necessary for farmers to fortify their homes. Once fortified, that other man, the thief, had to find a way around these obstacles. Ancient Nineveh, for example, had 50 miles of walls. They were 120 feet high, 30 feet thick, and there were 1,500 towers. Thus was born the siege and siege craft. In myth and legend, from Troy to Jericho, Jerusalem to Constantinople, Stalingrad to Leningrad, siege has gripped the imagination and horrified many with its brutality and relentless grinding nature. Siege is total warfare. Soldiers and civilians, men, women and children, are involved. So, Jamie, siege is an extended military campaign against a fortified position. It is total war. Yes, as you say, Tom, it's total war. And it certainly presaged what happened in the 20th century and civilian populations being the target, not just casual victims, byproducts of what was going on on the military front. Often you see that the besiegers, what they're going for is terror, starvation, bombardment, and ultimately a breach of the walls. It's always the poor civilians who get it in the neck. And in order to stand up against that siege, what you really need is control, discipline, and unity, not just among the military, but also among the political classes and among the civilian population. And so often you see sieges come to an end, the city or the fort falling, because of disunity, because of lack of discipline. If you look at AD 70, which we're going to get on to, the siege of Jerusalem, there was terrible disagreement and infighting among the zealots and the Jewish resistance to the Romans. Uh, later on, uh, in the siege of Paris, there was terrible disunity, first among the political classes, then among the commune, the radicals who took over. Unless you have unity, you're always going to have a problem. In the siege of Leningrad, the communists, in a way, because they had the fearsome NKVD, they could impose that discipline. They could execute people, summarily execute people, and introduce discipline. And it's no coincidence that just before the siege started, all private radios were confiscated from the population 
of three million in Leningrad. The private telephone lines were cut because the communist authorities, Stalin, of course, did not want anyone thinking outside the box, anyone spreading disinformation or going against the political ethos at the time. During the siege of Paris, meanwhile, there were sort of well over 40 uh, scurrilous pamphlets and newspapers preaching various radical ideas. So there was no sort of unity within Paris. And, and so that's what you get. That's what siege is about. During these bloody grinding times, you, you've got to have unity. You've got to have unity of purpose. It's the emergence of modern war, the breaking of the will, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. And you can see how that develops over time. By the 1940s and area bombing, it, it gathered a military philosophy around it, this idea of breaking the will of the civilians. And the civilians were very much the target. You know, they were very much the will of the Germans that had to be broken. That's really an extension of, of earlier sieges. Okay, good. Well, we're going to talk about um, one or two sieges. Before that, I've got a little confession to make. I've used this opportunity to get back to one of my favourite volumes of reference, the Encyclopaedia Britannica, 1910, 11th edition. Oh, which, no. Which has, which has a vast amount on fortifications and siege, up to and including uh, 1910, so obviously not the First World War. And guess who it was written by? Lieutenant Colonel L. Jackson. Is that a relation? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, well, reading it, it's almost unintelligible, so probably it is. Oh, yes, that's me. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I haven't been totally idle, and uh, I'm absolutely brimming with information on siege and fortification, as you can imagine. Anyway, so what we were going to talk, first of all, going back into um, ancient times well, AD, not BC, um, AD 70, the siege of Jerusalem. Yes, and that's a fascinating one, Tom, because, it, again, it's the civilian population. You, know, you have a city that Josephus said there were over one million uh, Jews there for Passover, but uh, historians think it's probably closer to half a million. So the, the city was packed, and it coincided with the Jewish revolt against the Romans. So Vespasian is emperor in Rome, his son Titus is there with seven legions encircling Jerusalem. There's no way they're going to allow the Jewish zealots to stand up to them. Unfortunately, as we said right at the beginning, the zealots are very divided. Uh, some have this messianic dream, some are simply rebels against Roman control and Roman taxation. And so there's a lot of infighting and one group starts destroying food stocks. So th there's immediately this, this division, there's immediately this disunity and no one knows what to do. So the Romans turn up with their legions, they build a massive wall around the city. So the city is cut off and every... Jew that tries to escape ends up being crucified. The Romans crucify 10,000 people, a lot of them in novelty positions around the wall. And again, it is this terror, this, the terror tactics that, that run like a thread through history. And you, whether it's the crucifixion of the Jews around Jerusalem or later on in the 21st century, uh, the, the bombing of Aleppo with barrel bombs, and the killing of children and women, 
and the destruction of civilians by Russian and Syrian helicopters or the snipers that were used in Sarajevo uh, to kill civilians, you can see that the civilians are really the target and breaking their will is all important. And not only did the Romans crucify people on the walls, that their Arab cohorts uh, went and slit any Jew open that, that wasn't crucified, um, looking for valuables because they knew that Jews getting out were swallowing their valuables um, and trying to get out. And so it was pretty grim. I mean, for five months, the people starved. Apparently, they were eating their children. It, it, it was horrifying. And it just gives a flavour of how even those ancient sieges were dramatic and terrifying. So even though we had a good laugh at the people's front of Judea and the Judean people's front in the Monty Python life of Brian, it's actually based on some truth. Yes, it is. And projecting forward to 1870-71 and the siege of Paris, you know, with the Jacobins and the Socialists and the Internationals and the Reds and the Liberals all fighting amongst each other while the siege goes on around yeah, them. Yeah, they probably hated each other more than the people who were attacking And them. that is one of the problems. That is absolutely one of the problems. If you don't have a unified command and unified political structure and a population that are willing to support you, then you're in trouble. And eventually, when the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem near the Jaffa Gate initially, and then attacked the temple, there was complete carnage. I mean, they talk about rivers of blood. They talk about just people piled high in the, in the narrow alleyways and up on Temple Mount. And it's very reminiscent of what happened later on in 1099 when the Crusaders took Jerusalem. But this time they weren't killing the Jews, they were killing the Muslims. And again, there was a last stand on Temple Mount and everyone was butchered there. So Jerusalem has a very bloody history. AD 70 is a key moment in that. OK, well, we'll jump on a few centuries to 1453 and Constantinople. And that marked really the end of the Middle Ages, the end of innocence, and certainly the end of uh, the Roman Empire, as it was, and Byzantium. And it was when the Sultan Mehmet II, Mehmet the Conqueror, which is probably one of the shorter titles of any Ottoman Sultan, given the ones that came later, he attacked... Constantinople. He had about 80,000 men, 10,000 Janissary shock troops, and standing against him was a very pitiful force of seven to 8,000 Christians. 2,000 of those were mercenaries, foreign mercenaries, and they were trying to guard walls 20 kilometers long. So they didn't really have a chance. There was a Turkish fleet of about 110 ships, the Genoese and Venetians who were pottering around Constantinople had about 25. So they were completely outclassed and outnumbered. The Ottomans brought over 700 siege cannon. One of those siege cannons was 27 foot long, uh, fired basilisk balls. One of the problems with these large siege guns, they took so long to reload that the defenders could rebuild the walls and patch them up in between the bombardment. This was very early days of bombardment of city walls, but it, it just showed what could be achieved. 
Eventually, on the 29th of May, the Sultan's forces broke through. And he had sent emissaries to negotiate, just as actually the Romans had tried to negotiate with the zealots and had sent Josephus, that Jewish turncoat, to negotiate with the Jewish zealots, and he was hit by an arrow. So that didn't turn out well. Mehmet's forces eventually got into Constantinople after a month and a half, and the slaughter began. He, it was a free-for-all. The fact that it's entered the annals of history in terms of the butchery it just shows how much blood was spilt. And again, as we've seen with all the other sieges, it was the civilians who suffered. The civilian population took shelter in the churches, certainly in the Santa Sophia. When the Turks went in, there was mass rape of both sexes. The elderly, the infirm, the sick were slaughtered. 30,000 boys and teenage men were taken away in chains as slaves. And the entire city was gutted. And Mehmet apparently shed tears when he saw the devastation. But he might have known what was going to happen. But that completely marked a change in the politics of that part of the world and really saw the start of the expansion of the Ottoman Empire and one that led later on to Suleiman the Magnificent and, of course, his expansion and the Great Siege of Malta of 1565. Great. Well, maybe we should have a little intermezzo before we get on to our next siege. And uh, I could just give you a few little bite-sized factoids from the Encyclopaedia Britannica. So with fortification, there are two elements to fortifying a place. One is protection, and the other one is to create obstacles. Um, And with obstacles, you have direct obstacles like walls and ramparts and so on, and then indirect ones like distance, height and concealment. These two elements go together. There are two branches of fortification. You have permanent ones like walls and you have ones that you might build in the field. I mean, for instance, the trenches in the in the First World War were meant to be field obstacles, but obviously they turned into rather permanent obstacles after a while. In ancient times, once they designed a way of fortifying a town, they had these different fortifications and the Romans ended up being the people who were absolutely brilliant, as we've just seen in the Siege of Jerusalem, at coming up with ideas of how to defeat it. And legionnaires were excellent engineers. They were very practical all-round people, not just soldiers, not just like medieval knights in the the Dark Ages who really just wanted to uh, swing a sword and weren't interested in anything else. The Romans came up with all sorts of brilliant ideas and basically they could besiege and defeat any fortified position. Yes, it was an arms race, Tom. You, people were always trying to come up with ideas. And it wasn't just the Romans. The Ottomans became brilliant engineers, both in terms of tunnelling and undermining walls, but also in terms of siege engines. You can see this all the way through history. I mean, ultimately, when the Crusaders took Jerusalem in 1099, they were using siege engines as well as battering rams and trying to undermine walls. So it it definitely became an art and a skill and a science in terms of breaking through into those fortifications. And one of the issues that became apparent over the centuries was the faith that so many defenders had in those fortifications. One of the problems the French have always had, for example, during the siege of Paris of 1870, they had 16 forts around Paris, all of them with covering arcs of fire, 
And they felt very secure, but they hadn't factored in that they could be starved out, just as later on in the 1930s leading up to 1940, the French believed that the Maginot Line would give them uh, a, a fantastic defensive position, when in fact the Germans simply went around it. So that can be the problem. You can be cut off and you can be outmaneuvered, outflanked and eventually beaten. But it is extraordinary that the Romans basically were innovators in siege work, siege craft. Once the Roman Empire fell, the, the understanding of siege craft went east, but wasn't wildly developed, it was maintained. And in the West, Western Europe it was almost completely forgotten. So if you had your car castle, which happened to, or fortified town, being built by the Romans, you could sit in it and be relatively safe from various raiding Huns or Goths or whatever. Well, and as long as you had a well, that, that was the main thing. Yes, and I mean, you see some of them all built by a river or, or, or whatever. Obviously, uh, they could be starved out, but they, they sort of lost the ability to think up anything new and that it's interesting how you you know you say about the French in 1870 they were sort of captured by the idea of sitting behind their walls and feeling safe yes and once panic sets in what's fascinating is how people start thinking we must come up with a secret weapon and we'll talk about this when we get to the siege of Paris in 1870 but you know, just before that and the start of the Franco-Prussian war the French were convinced that they had secret weapons that could beat the Prussians. So they came up with their mitrailleurs, and this was top secret. It was essentially a Gatling-type weapon, 26 barrels. But it was absolutely bloody useless because it had half the range of traditional cannon. And it was heavier and more unwieldy so it could never get in a position where it was going to be any use so that was a secret weapon that failed and then the French started coming up with even more bizarre ideas at one point someone had an idea of uh, creating a giant hammer and floating it up on balloons and dropping it on Moltke, the German commander's field headquarters. <laughs> and there was someone else who came up with an idea of firing smallpox in bottles into the Prussians. So, so this is what happens. And, and it's no different to Hitler coming up with the V-weapon programme during the Second World War when he, his back was against the wall. People start panicking. People start coming up with crazy ideas. But by that stage the die is cast and they've lost either the war or the siege. It is extraordinary how improvisation is actually extremely important. You know, we talked about the need for control and discipline and unit, as well as courage and commitment. But you also need the ability to respond to the situation. The next siege we were just going to touch upon, although we have covered it in our Fort St. Elmo uh, podcast, was the great siege of Malta, 1565, Suleiman the Magnificent sent a vast fleet, vast armada and an army to attack the 750 Knights of St. John with their 2,000 Spanish infantry and a few thousand Maltese civilians to help them uh, on Malta. What was interesting about that siege was the Turks tried everything and every moment they were, they were thwarted. You know, they, they used a siege engine, the Knights ran out, cannon at the base, and blew the siege engine out of the, out of the sky. The 
at one point, the Turks thought, it's raining, we've got them, they can't use their gunpowder and their arquebuses. So they crept up and were suddenly hit by hundreds of quarrels, crossbow bolts, because the Grand Master had reconditioned those crossbows before the siege started. So you can see all these aspects of trying to counter at that particular moment in time. Another occasion, the Turks got through a breach and found that during the night, the knights had built a second wall behind and were suddenly hit with wildfire pots, with arquebus fire, with crossbow fire, with, um, with barrels of gunpowder, with anything that came to hand to the knights and on that occasion were thwarted. So it's this constant skirmish, battle, response, attack that goes on. It's, it's almost like a very violent dance, and you can see it in every siege that occurs. After 1815 and the Battle of Waterloo, there was a period of peace, particularly for Britain, uh, when we did quite nicely. Gradually, the European situation up to 1870, before the Prussian, Franco-Prussian War, the highlight of life was centred around Paris, in particular the Great Exhibition of 1867. Yes, and as we know, the French were and probably still are obsessed with la gloire and their central position in Europe. They really, truly thought they were the centre of civilization; that everything revolved around them. And now, Jamie, be nice. <laughs> it's not of my nature, Tom. Okay. <laughs> But, but decadence and depravity, it, here we it, come. It was a period of decadence and depravity, but the Second Empire really was a glittering affair and you know, they really thought they were important and Paris was the place to be. 1867 and the Great Exhibition showed that, but, but underneath the sort of glamour and the glitter and everything else, there were some very dark shadows there was revolution lurking in the wings. The proletariat were not happy. Karl Marx in 1867, same year as the Great Exhibition in Paris, published Das Kapital. It was the year of the Second International. So you have that going on. You also have a huge shift in the power dynamic in Europe. Prussia is the coming force, and the French don't like it at all. And what's interesting about that Great Exhibition in 1867 with its glittering palace of glass was at the centre of the French exhibition was a statue of peace. The centre of the Prussian exhibition was a 50-tonne Krupp howitzer that could fire a thousand-pound shell. Again, the French were totally unaware of the, the German, the Prussian officers studying models of the French forts that the French so proudly had on display. They but, didn't know what was going on. Because Napoleon himself, although it was all rather dissipated, he had some quite modern ideas. Yes, he did bring in some reforming liberal policies. I mean, he, he brought in maternity laws, he brought in worker cities, he brought in mutual support organisations, but he was never going to please the radicals, and that was the problem. He fuelled the rise of the proletariat left, the, the Reds, because he didn't satisfy them enough. They wanted to overturn the empire. In between the masked balls that could cost four or five million francs in the Tuileries and the Tableau Vivant, there was this darkness. I mean, 
Paris had 35,000 prostitutes. I mean, it's no coincidence that that's where Edward VII wanted to spend most of his time. I mean, everyone's seen photographs of his special sex chair that he had. And, you know, even during the Great Exhibition, when Tsar Alexander II was there, the only reason he came along was because a month before he had installed his mistress Katya in a house and he could walk there every night. Well, well, I want to know more about this chair. <laughs> what does it look like? Well, I tell you, if you if, if you see it, Tom, you'll have no idea how it was used. It's got very sort of handles sticking was out. Was it because he was very large and therefore he, could, he had to sort of be supported from the yes, ceiling? Yes, yes. I mean, there is an artist's representation of how it was used because I tell you, it would totally baffle anyone if they saw it. <laughs> uh, but it does involve a girl crouching on all fours. I do remember that. Oh, yeah. But... So uh, there's, a, there's a moral disintegration, but more importantly, almost, there's hubris. There is hubris because no one can see what is going on. So certainly not the French elite. They, they're not interested in what's going on. It's interesting that the last masked ball at the Tuileries, Empress Eugenie, the wife of uh, Louis Napoleon, uh, went dressed as Marie Antoinette. I mean, talk about... Yeah, bad choice. It was seriously a bad choice. And syphilis was rampant at the time. I mean, everyone died from it. I mean, Manet, de Maupassant, Baudelaire. I mean, they were all dying from it. And Renoir said that he, he couldn't have been a genius because he never caught it. And that that's the sort of situation that you find in Paris at that stage. And ulti- So it was, an, it was a mark of achievement? Well, it was certainly a mark of a genius. But eventually the French overreached. They didn't like this upstart Prussian regime. They hadn't noticed that the Prussians had walloped the Austrians. They picked a quarrel with the Prussians over who was going to be the next king of Spain. And eventually, in 1870, they declared war. And it was the worst mistake they ever made. Again, they were convinced in their military superiority. I mean, during the Great Exhibition, they had a parade of 30,000 French troops. There were actually supposed to be 60,000, but the French couldn't get their act together. They were there with their gaudy uniforms and their plumes. And, of course, they were coming up against the Prussians in grey uniforms who had militarism on their mind. The French weren't aware that the Prussians could at 1.2 million men under arms, that they had a fantastic railway system to support their military ventures. And they took on the wrong opponent. And in fact, the French army didn't have any maps of France. It simply had maps of Prussia, because that's who they were invading. Of course, they went... That what, that's where they thought they'd be doing their fighting. Yes, yeah. and they got it completely wrong. And very quickly, Louis Napoleon headed out with his army. Very quickly, he had to surrender at Sedan. He was very ill by this stage. He had a huge bladder stone the size of a pigeon's egg. Apparently, he had to rouge his face so his men didn't see how ill he was. So he surrendered. 250,000 men went into captivity. Uh, a couple of months later, another uh, 180,000 men surrendered at Metz. And the Prussians could then encircle Paris in mid-July. And that's what they did. Why, why were the Prussians so good at their military matters? What had, the, what had inspired them to suddenly get their act together? Or had they always been good? Oh, Bismarck had thought of it. Oh, they were always extremely good. I mean, you're going back to the days of Frederick the Great. Ah, oh, a great man and, the, uh, in, uh, and, in, and his cavalry. And his cavalry... And his cavalry 
blitzkriegs. And uh, the, the, the Prussians had this proud military tradition. They wanted to be bigger than they were. They wanted a unified Germany. Bismarck certainly did. And he saw the Franco-Prussian War, which he basically engineered. He wanted that to be the catalyst for a united Germany, which it became. Because in the middle of the siege in January 1871 at Versailles, where the Prussians had their HQ, that's where the Kaiser announced the unification of Germany. So it was on the back of the siege of Paris and the Franco-Prussian War. So the Germans close in, the French mount a few desultory operations uh, on the plain of Châtillon, south of Paris. They're beaten there, and there were images of these red pantalooned French soldiers heading back into Paris. Uh, they mounted another operation. Oh, that's Borgia. where you get the um, the expression for the, you know partridge, where you have grey, grey and red, red partridge, and they're red legs. So the the partridge of the red legs is the French partridge. Yes, yes, and that and you can imagine the mo- the the drop in morale. I mean, here were the French who had cheered. Certainly, the proletariat believed this was we were, they were going to wallop the Prussians, and it all turned sour very quickly. And there was another action at Le Bourget, the village of Le Bourget, four miles northeast of Paris. They were hammered there, and the Prussians were using quite inventive tactics, you know, skirmish groups with bayonets, that sort of thing. Okay, so the actual siege of Paris, four and a half months, 130 days. What happened? Well, the French did try and sortie out. They had what they called their grand sortie, uh, which turned yet again into a total rout. This was in late November 1870. They didn't appreciate quite how weak the Germans were at that stage. I mean, the the Germans initially only had 122,000 people around Paris and 20,000-odd cavalry. The the French had managed to raise uh, a force of about 400,000 National Guard, but they were all drunk. They were ill-trained, ill-equipped. There was this clash between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, we've talked about these schisms before, these terrible rivalries. The proletariat National Guard were often drunk. They elected their own officers, so if they didn't like something, they just got rid of them. And this was the problem. Well, bearing in mind that this uh, talk is about siege, Paris had a wall around it, didn't it? But obviously it's a big city, it's not a fort. So how does, how does that work in terms of siege and siegecraft? Well, it had 40 to 50 miles of encircling walls, but it just meant that the Parisians were trapped and the Paris authorities had factored in 1.5 million inhabitants. In fact, there were 2 million by that stage. And although they started with cows and sheep on the Bois de Boulogne and everything else, they were eaten very quickly. Initially, people were bored with the siege. It became a sort of middle-class or wealthier-class thing to take carriage drives to view the forts. They actually believed the forts would save them, but they didn't appreciate they were trapped. And that is so often the way, as we've said before, with siege. Well, the, there's a difference, isn't there, then, between laying siege to a castle, which is perhaps filled with a relatively small number of men who are probably all under arms, and a fortified town or city where you've got a huge population that has to be looked after and fed. 
it's a serious problem. You know, paranoia started to spread. Everyone started seeing Prussian spies. I mean, there were examples of people being caught and bound and thrown in the Seine and stoned in the river and drowned. It happened all the time. Even Renoir, who was just painting a picture at one stage, was arrested and, and was thought to be a Prussian spy because he was painting some of the features of Paris. As we mentioned before, there were all these radical newspapers, there were all these pamphlets, there were all these people infighting. And I think they were sort of feeding on themselves. They didn't really know what was coming. And then the food started running out. And that became a serious issue. And they started by eating horses. That's really where the French got their taste for eating horse, from the siege of Paris. And so the horses were eaten, the animals in the zoo were eaten, and then rats started being eaten. It's always been said that the price for brewery rats was far higher than the price for sewer rats. But you could certainly see citizens sitting around with fishing rods um, with their lines down the manholes trying to pick up rats, trying to catch rats. And yet extraordinary, unlike the siege of Leningrad where millions died, um, nobody actually died. No, they didn't. And, and weirdly enough, some restaurants were still offering quite good food right up to the end if you had the money. But Well, I have, yeah, I have my grandfather's Art of French Cooking cookbook here. And I mean, the difference in the menu um, from 1820, say, in the Tuileries to a, a restaurant in 1870 in the middle of the war, um, on the face of it, it's not that different. I mean, they're still trying to keep up appearances because 1820 you have, I mean, it's a vast menu with two soups, four large dishes, 16 entrees, uh, four more large dishes, then three roasts, including pheasant, partridge and woodcocks, another 16 side dishes and so on. And it's an enormous amount. But the, this menu from the uh, pa Paris restaurant during the siege, uh, dated 25th of December, 1870, and even says 99th day of the siege. This is a verbatim. And you've got, in amongst the hors d'oeuvres, uh, radishes, stuffed donkey's head, uh, soups, including elephant consommé, entrees, fried goujon, roast camel, English style. I don't know if that's a... A bit of a tick It just there. means there's no imagination involved in yeah. cooking it. It's just, it's just, it's just, just a roast. <laughs> it's just a roast. <laughs> nice, I'm sure it's delicious. Jugged kangaroo and roast bear chops. Poor old bear. Anyway. I've, uh, I've eaten a few of those things, actually. Wasn't there one, a cat as well? Yeah, yeah. And then you come on to the main course, the roast. You've got haunch of wolf. You've got antelope terrine. Mushrooms bordelaise, I think probably would have gone for that. And, of course, a dish, the roast dish of cat flanked by rats. But the wine, I mean, you know, the first service of wine includes Chateau Parma, and the second includes Mouton Rothschild and Romany Conti. So the cellars were obviously in reasonable state. Do you think with the camel, they said, have you got the humpser? <laughs> and yeah, other bad just tricks remind me, that. Jamie's not allowed to tell any funny stories or jokes <laughs> on this podcast. They did have a salami de rat. Actually, that was another thing that they... Uh, with thinly sliced rats. Yes. Well, probably, uh, yes, that's right. It's, and, there were a bit raw. and there were butchers specialising... Chivise, or whatever they call it. <laughs> yes. And there were butchers specialising in dog and cat all over Paris. They sprung up all over Paris. Shh, don't say dog. Maggie's sitting in the corner there. She's looking very upset. Sorry, Maggie. She wouldn't yeah, have... Your rallies. <laughs> but so things did, did get 
pretty tough and pretty unpleasant. The food would have run out after a few days by the time the, the Paris authorities surrendered. And the, and the Prussians are not bothering to really attack. They're just going to starve them out. Is that the... Well, they did they end up. At the beginning of January, they, they, they ran out of patience and they did stop bombarding. And overall, they fired about 12,000 shells into Paris with a range of about 7,500 metres if they had extended range shells. Uh, mostly, they were sort of 5,500 metres range. And so they were really only hitting the left bank. And so, again, just like the going out to see the fortifications, this became a sort of attraction uh, for the Parisians. It gave them something to do, to watch the bombardment. The shells didn't do that much damage because you're still talking about black powder. You're not talking about high explosive in a shell, you know, or certainly not modern high explosive or TNT. You know, each shell might be able to create a crater three feet across or knock out a brick, but they weren't devastating Paris in the way that, that one thinks. But it's certainly the start of the idea of bombarding civilian populations. It's the first real attempt. It, it presages the appearance of total war in the 20th century. Even though only, only 100 were killed. Yes, not that many. But, it, but, it, but it's a taste of things to come, I think. Now, Jamie, we want to talk about one of your favourite subjects, balloons. Yes. I mean, every siege has a sort of totemic aspect to it, has a, something that symbolises that particular siege. And I think with the siege of Paris, other than rats, it's going to be balloons, because these balloons, 2,000 cubic metres of coal gas inside them, highly explosive, very experimental, were fabricated in the Gare de Lyon. The cotton was painted, was varnished. Was varnished yeah. yeah, in the Gare de And they actually practised in baskets hanging from the ceiling in the Gare de because this was such an early attempt at flight. It was what were they trying to do? Well, they were trying to take messages out of Paris to try and... Uh, this General Gambetta was trying to raise an army outside Paris... Uh, he, he did manage, actually, uh, just before the grand sortie from Paris to take Orléans. But, of course, the Prussians totally smashed his army um, as he was trying to get to Paris. So n nothing was doing there. And during the siege, 65 balloons set out from Paris, uh, carrying letters and carrying officials. One ended up in Norway, two ended up in Germany, five were captured by the Germans. But it did allow messages to get out. The big problem was trying to get messages in. Pigeons were best there, and there, there was early microfilm to do that. And each pigeon could actually carry about 40,000 dispatches. And so messages occasionally got into Paris, but they were still very cut off. But Paris was still the seat of government then, was it? They were, and they were trying to raise forces outside Paris and they were stuck inside. As they well. were, and, and even Garibaldi came over from Italy to try and cause a bit of disturbance in the south. But it, it just died out. The, the, nothing could actually deal with the Prussian menace, with the Prussian efficiency and the size of the Prussian army by that stage. So in the end, there was a surrender. The proletariat in, in Paris, the National Guard, who we talked about, the, who, who so many of them were drunk, did not like this at all. And again, you project forward to 
you know, the First World War, and you can see the message that Hitler was trying to get across was Germany wasn't defeated on the battlefield, it was the politicians that betrayed us. Well, you go back to the siege of Paris and exactly the same message was being pushed by the radicals, by the left, who said, we have been betrayed. You know, it's this government, it's Tranchu and his terrible generalship yep. that, that, that let us down. They will never accept what happens. They would never accept. And, and that's really what then gives rise to the next stage of the siege of Paris, which was really the commune. The commune. The Prussians have negotiated terms. They get to keep Alsace, and what else do they get? Oh, they get reparations. They, it's it's pretty punitive, and again, this does not go down well with the Paris mob, and so the, the government, as it is, is essentially overthrown at the Hotel Duville. You know, people throw out names on messages, and the mob cheer, and so that person is elected in. So what's so, happened to Napoleon? He's abdicated. Oh, no, no, no. He was captured in Sedan. Yeah, but so, I mean, he's still... Yes, yes, he, the, 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 the empire has gone. It's now right. a republic. Right. And now it's then the next stage of the republic. It's the commune. The only key policy that, that the commune seems to have come up with during the time that it was actually there was... Uh, an ending to uh, night baking. So that was fine for the bakers, but of course it meant all the bread was going to be stale. So that then pissed off the bourgeoisie. So again, you have this terrible sort of internecine feuding between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, and it becomes more and more ugly. The commune, they build barricades because they know that forces are going to come in from Versailles. The, the Prussians are sitting on the east side of Paris, sitting back, watching this happen. So is there a government at all? Is, uh, no, it's the commune. In, they are the government. In, they, are the, they are the government. And, of course, they're all sitting there going, oh, I refer you to paragraph 5, subsection 3, clause 25, our comrades. You know, what propels them is the mob on the street. Yeah. And you you start getting these tricoteurs, just like the French Revolution. And in fact, you know, they're represented really in the Hotel de Ville and the government by the Jacobins who want to return to the terror of 1793. And so hostages are taken, including the Bishop of Paris. They're all banged up in La Roquette, the, the jail. It's turning very, very ugly. And the more pressure the commune feel the more they start taking it out on clerics on the bourgeoisie on people they think have betrayed them and was this so this is when they go to the barricades is this is when they go to the barricades because forces loyal to the concept of the republic and who are against the commune who want order come in from Versailles, they they put together an army and eventually they break through. And this is when you get these barricades being attacked and the houseman designed boulevards and avenues suddenly become a death trap for the, for the communards because they're outflanked. And suddenly weapons like the mitrailleurs, that early multi-barreled machine gun, come into their own firing against the barricades, the communards are slaughtered. It starts getting even uglier because the hostages start to get murdered and the Bishop of Paris, he's taken out with other senior clerics and they're killed by firing squad. 
And in fact, the first time that the firing squad fire, they're all so drunk and useless that they miss and they have to finish the bishop off, the elderly man off, with pistols. They then take out another 50 and they bayonet them and shoot them. And in fact, when they count the bodies, they're 51 because there's a drunk National Guardsman who's obviously got close and personal and wanted to stab someone and he was killed as well. <laughs> so it's pretty nasty. I mean, the bodies there had 60 to 70 bayonet wounds or uh, musket ball wounds. I mean, it, it, it's it's dreadful. Okay. And, and the city itself is on fire. Yes. And then you get petroleurs, the, the, these, these again, these enraged women, a lot of them, going out and starting fires. And it's a miracle that Notre Dame was not set on fire because yeah. they planned to do that. But the Tuileries is set on fire. The Louvre Museum is just saved before it burns down. Mm. But a lot of the key public buildings, I mean, Paris... Even the Hotel de Ville. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Paris is a fire. It's just... Yeah. Totally in flames, and, and the statues are coming down. The that, statues are coming that down. Popular activity of pulling down statues. Funny that, isn't it? Unthinking, useless people always want to pull down statues, and the great monument to Napoleon in the Place Vendôme that's pulled down with great applause by everyone there, and it took quite a few days to bring it down. But Paris is in a really bad way. But finally, the army get in there. They take the barricades and, uh, you know, one or two of the leaders of the commune put on their top hats, actually, and climb to the top of the barricades and are shot through the head. It's a pretty dramatic end. But then what happens is an absolute horror because the invading army get their revenge and they summarily execute... Yeah, just just cause to stop it at that moment, okay. by, by, by now... The, the Prussians are just sitting back watching this happen. The French are sort of doing it to themselves. They've created uh, their own kind of internecine war between two sides. Yes, it's terrible infighting. And, so it's uh, no longer actually even a siege, really. It's it? more a civil war, but it's a civil war that's over pretty quickly. And there's a slaughter in the cemetery. There's a terrible battle in the cemetery where people are being killed all over the place. Uh, that, that's where the communards put up a, a resistance. Eventually, when the last barricade is taken, there is mass summary execution. 25,000 men, women and children are killed. But the ghastliest site in Pierre Lachaise was in the southeastern corner, where close to the boundary wall there had been a natural hollow. The hollow was now filled up by dead. One could measure the dead by the rude. There they lay, tier above tier, each successive tier powdered over with a coating of chloride of lime. Two hundred of them lay patent to the eye, besides those underneath hidden by the earth, covering layer after layer. Among the dead were many women. There, thrown up in the sunlight, was a well-rounded arm with a ring on one of the fingers. There again was a bust shapely in death. And yonder were faces which to look upon made one shudder, faces distorted out of humanity with ferocity and agony combined. The ghastly effect of the dusty white powder on the dulled eyes, the gnashed teeth and the jagged beards cannot be described. How died these men and women? Were they carted hither and laid out in this dead hole of Pierre Lachaise? Not so. The hole had been replenished from close by. 
just yonder, was where they were posted up against that section of pock-pitted wall. There was no difficulty in reading the open book, and was shot to death as they stood or crouched. You know, we get dewy-eyed over the Peterloo Massacre of 1816, where 18 people were killed, it's reckoned, um, when we have industrial grievances up in Manchester. You know, 18 people. Yeah, it's still, you know, it's still it's awful. Still, yeah, it's but still I'm, awful, but it's not on the mass no, scale. That's uh, the problem with numbers like this, is the moment you get into the thousands and millions, people lose interest, don't they? Yes, but what you can see in this sort of fratricide, really, in, 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 within the French community, within French public life, is the beginnings of the sort of schisms that affect French politics for a century to come. And it's, it's not too big a leap to say what happened in the commune, with the commune and afterwards with the reprisal killings, and what happened at Verdun, in the First World War, when 170,000 French soldiers died and another 200,000 plus were injured, you know that is one of the reasons these schisms in French society that caused capitulation uh, in 1940 with the German invasion of France. Because, because well, local groups are not that loyal to the central government. Yes, no one's going to be loyal to the centre. No one trusts the central government, or will put their neck on the line for them. Everyone has local grievances and local adherences, really, local loyalties. And so you get this from that moment on in French society. So it is a turning point in terms of French politics, in terms of the rise of Prussia, and in terms of revolutionary politics. And in fact, Lenin took the commune you know, that example saying they weren't brutal enough. The commune themselves were not brutal enough. Right. And what they needed to have... Take it to the nth degree. Take it to the yeah. nth degree yeah. and eliminate your rivals. Mm. And so, again, all these lessons came out of the siege of Paris. So, mm. to, for me, that is one of the most critical episodes of the 19th century. Yes. Well, and then, you you know, you have the Second Reich starting in... Uh, 1871, after the uh, Franco-Prussian War. Yes, you have the formation of Germany and Bismarck got his way. So, you know, the sad thing is, had uh, the Kaiser, Wilhelm I's son, uh, the Crown Prince Frederick, uh, stayed alive longer, he would have been a very benign influence. You know, he didn't like civilians being hurt. He was very careful with his forces. He had an English wife, the, the daughter of uh, Queen Victoria, Unfortunately, it was their ghastly little son, Wilhelm, who became Wilhelm II, uh, who ended up taking over, and we know what happened then. Well, we had absolutely a systemized forcefulness beginning, which was um, cleverly described in Erskine Childers' book, The Riddle of the Sands, The Dangers to Britain from the... The German threat. Yes, and he really started this whole idea of we've got to take Prussia seriously. We've got to take the new Germany seriously, whether it's their prospect of invasion or whether it's the building of a German fleet. And and you can see this is the beginning of you know the, the Germans building uh, a high seas fleet of trying to take on the British, of thinking about overseas empire. 
So it's a very important moment. And, you know, that takes us really into the 20th century and the horrors that were to come with siege later on in the Second World War. Okay, that's quite enough about the Franco-Prussian War. Let's go to some of the colonial wars a little bit later. Well, they were happening all over the place because, as you know, policing empire, guarding the colonies, takes a lot of effort. And sometimes there are going to be high-handed policies that annoy the locals. And sometimes you're going to run into other powers, other forces that are working against you. So if you take 1857 and the Siege of Lucknow and the Indian Mutiny, you know, it coincided with the introduction of the Enfield rifle. The rumour spread that the cartridge that had to be torn open with your teeth uh, had either pig fat or cow fat on it, which would have absolutely incensed both Hindus and Muslims. And that mutiny spread through the ranks. And so you have a siege there, the residency and troops and civilians under siege. And it was a very grim siege. And there were attempts to undermine buildings and all of this sort of thing that went on for six months from May 1857 to November. So, you know, it was grim, but eventually they were relieved. During the Boer War later on at uh, the Siege of Mafeking and the Siege of Ladysmith, again, you have British forces and British civilians under siege and holding out. And the Boers, who were superb soldiers, superb guerrilla fighters, infiltrating positions, and they certainly did so with the help of British deserter, for example, at, at Mafeking, you know, caused considerable amount of disruption and trouble. Uh, the bit I did like about the siege of Ladysmith was that the Boers fired a Christmas pudding into the British lines with compliments of the season. So uh, chivalry... They and, kept, their, kept their sense of humour, at least their on sense one of side. Humor. <laughs> and there was a bit of chivalry. Yeah. But so often with colonial, well, say British colonial rule as such, partly the people at home in England and Britain were not that interested or, or enthusiastic about anything other than perhaps the trade benefits. And even those were sometimes questionable, but also that it was all done on a total shoestring. Yes, and it was always a corner of a foreign field and no one ever took any notice. You can see from those Rudyard Kipling poems, and we've read extracts in other podcasts, you know, the, the plight of the British soldier on the in these far-flung corners of empire, you know, from Afghanistan to India to Africa. These these engagements were going on all the time. And when it really flared up, you would have a siege. And for those of you who like a good novel on the subject, The Siege of Krishnapur by J.G. Farrell is the most fantastic book. Yes. It's a really wonderful book. I absolutely loved it. Okay. Now a very serious subject, the siege of Leningrad, or as we know it today, St. Petersburg, and as it was originally. The Russians, they call it the blockade, the blockade. 1.2 million dead, Jamie. It was the most horrifying moment uh, in terms of siege history that anyone has ever witnessed. You've been there, haven't you? I have, and when you stand on the Leningrad Memorial Cemetery. It's essentially a mass grave of 500,000 people. It's, 
just such a dark moment in history. It, I, I remember talking to a woman who was a little girl who had been sent out by her parents to try and find the first blades of grass in the spring because there was nothing else to eat. You, when you're talking about a ration of 1.25 grams per person of bread per day, you can see how desperate it became and you can see why cannibalism was rife. And the NKVD, the secret police, their files are full of references to people uh, being arrested and charged with cannibalism. Uh, you know, there was one story of a woman smothering her baby in order to feed her older children. And that, and that went on all the time. And because bodies were left out in the street, they were obvious targets for people who hadn't eaten uh, for days it, and weeks. It, it, it was truly, truly dreadful. And this was the Nazis who had pinned uh, this vast number of Russians into Leningrad against the sea. Yes, I mean, the Axis forces had tried to encircle Leningrad. They, they never totally succeeded because there was a Lake Ladoga and the Russians managed to hold positions around there on the Neva River. During the winter months, they occasionally got uh, convoys of trucks across but, of course, the Germans knew this was happening, so they'd bomb the ice. And there were instances of hundreds of trucks just dropping below the ice. It was the most terrible time for everyone. You know, again, we talked about balloons being the symbol of the siege of Paris. Really. That's what people remember. What people often remember about the siege of Leningrad was the August 1942 recording by the Leningrad Radio Orchestra, what remained of them, uh, of Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad Symphony. And that was broadcast. That was broadcast on loudspeakers to the people at the front. As we said, it's about commitment and drive and unity and discipline and control. The advantage the Soviets had was that they had control at all moments. There was never going to be mass panic. There was never going to be a retreat anywhere. There was nowhere to go. And there was certainly not going to be surrender. Even today, youth groups go out at weekends to try and find dog tags of soldiers in, in the forests. They're still digging up bones. In fact, the bones just come to the surface. It, it, it was a total charnel house, the siege of Leningrad. And it's really... Uh, a symbol and a warning to future generations of what can happen. And if they hadn't held out, what, how would that have affected uh, Hitler's war in the East? It's very difficult to say because it, it, the Germans expended so much effort and energy. And if you look at Stalingrad, for example, it's really Stalingrad that broke the Germans. You know, the, the siege of Leningrad was really the most horrifying of all the sieges, you know, 900 day siege almost. And as you said, 1.2 million plus casualties, both civilian and military. But Stalingrad, you saw a million deaths on both sides and they were essentially military. And it was the end of Hitler's dream, the end of von Paulus and his sixth army that was surrounded and totally annihilated. By the time they surrendered on February the 2nd, 1943, you had 70,000-plus troops surrendering out of an army that had been hundreds of thousands strong. 
and of those, only 7,000 came back alive from the Soviet Gulag. And after that, as we've said in other podcasts, the Germans never advanced again. That was the beginning of their great retreat. So the, so the Soviets' policy, brutal though it was, was, well, for them, correct. And it, it broke the generals' trust in Hitler. That was the moment where they t- started to turn against him. Totally. And, and if you have someone like Stalin and his secret police chief, Beria, putting NKVD battalions behind the Soviet lines, uh, ready to shoot anyone who retreats, you know, those are the policies the Soviets took because they knew what was at stake and they knew they were not going to turn back. They they knew that this was make or break. And so Stalingrad and Leningrad stand out in the Second World War as the most terrifying and horrendous moments of battle uh, during the whole of the Second World War. Um, there was also another appalling example of where two sides fighting against each other take it out in a most unsavoury fashion on a third party, and that is the Warsaw, Warsaw Ghetto. Yes, the Soviets stood back and let the Germans finish off both the Jews and the Polish resistance because the Soviets didn't want to have to mop up the Polish resistance. So they stood back and let it happen. It was the most heroic act by the besieged Jews of Warsaw, of the ghetto. But it led to ninety to 100,000 immediate deaths and then hundreds of thousands or more uh, deported to the death camps. So, uh, you know, all those actions were terrifying and terrible. Staying with the Second World War just for the moment, do you think that the Battle of the Atlantic was a siege of fortress Britain? I think it was. I've always believed that. We're an island nation and we were blockaded. It was certainly the main German effort to strangle us and stop the war effort and certainly later on stop us being involved in the Normandy landings and allowing the Americans to come over. If you look at the tonnage lost, it was a huge threat to Britain's survival, far more so than any idea of invasion of Britain, I think, earlier in the war. You're talking 14.5 million tonnes of Allied shipping going to the bottom, sunk by the German U-boat wolf packs. That's 3,500 merchant marine ships and 36,000 merchant seamen were killed. So it was a huge effort, a huge sacrifice. It was a battle to the death, so it was certainly a type of siege. The Germans came very close to succeeding and had it not really been, not only for the naval effort and air force effort, but also the breaking of the Enigma Code and our ability to track where the U-boats were, we would have found it very hard to survive. Yeah, well, you can see it in the figures. I mean, clearly, 1942 was the year which was had the most horrific losses month by month. You know, in January, it starts at over 300,000 tonnes, and then by July, June, rather, um, it uh, has gone up to 700,000 tonnes in that month alone. And that carries on, really, until um, the middle of... Uh, 1943, when they're still losing a quarter of a million tonnes in a month, and then gradually they get on top of it, and it starts to fall. Yes, it was really the convoy system, the breaking of the Enigma cipher, and also the, the, the 
coming on stream of a of American ships of American cheaply built mass produced uh, cargo ships, military ships. ships, yeah, yes, and and that definitely helped. And being able to protect the convoys from the air as well, further and further across the Atlantic. Yes, it became extremely important that our bombers and our seaplanes could actually uh, deal with the U-boat menace. And, and you know, we, we, we dealt with it. But as Bomber Harris says, you know, it was much more effective hitting the German U-boats in port and when they were being manufactured and transported than actually trying to hunt them in the middle of the, the Atlantic. So the Second World War ends, Jamie. Does that mean we no longer have to worry about sieges? No, it still goes on. It's still a modern curse, really, and you see it in civil wars, uh, particularly in places like uh, the former Yugoslavia and Syria. In Bosnia-Herzegovina, for example, in Sarajevo, you've got one of the longest sieges in history. It's always claimed that it is the longest siege in history. Thousands of people were killed. The Serbs indiscriminately shelled, uh, were targeting civilians with snipers. That famous story of the young couple who were both killed, one a Bosnian, one a Serb, and that went round the world, that story. It's one of those moments, it's one of those stories that stand out. There were atrocities on both sides. I mean, the 10th Bosnian Mountain Division uh, took a whole load of Serbs to the Kazani pit and slaughtered them there, and that became a mass grave. So... It was a pretty terrifying, pretty horrifying siege. And you know, just like Kosovo, where body parts were found in fridges and tortured remains of people were found dumped at the sides of roads, it was truly a horrendous modern European war and modern European siege. In Aleppo in the 21st century, you get another example of the horrors of civilians being encircled and bombed indiscriminately by opposing forces, this time the Syrians and the Russians. And we mentioned the barrel bombs. Thousands of civilians were killed um, during that siege, well over 10,000 people. And so many of them were children. So many of them were multi-trauma wounds, intestines hanging out, and all because the Russians and Syrians thought it was okay to drop explosives with bolts and screws and nails in um, with high explosive into civilian population centres, onto hospitals, into schools. So this curse of siege hasn't gone away because warfare hasn't gone away and humans don't get any nicer. Yep, you're right. It's a grim business. Uh, Jamie, do we... Uh, well, I know we do. You love them. So we're going to have a PS... We do have a postscript, Tom, but we're going back in time. 16th of March to the 6th of April, 1812, and it's the Peninsular War, and Wellington is attacking the Spanish, and at the fortified town of Badajoz, there is a French garrison of 5,000. Uh, Wellington's army is about 25,000 Anglo-Portuguese. This is about the third attempt to get the town. It's well-fortified, but the Brits really want it. So they bombard it. They have 24-pounders, 18-pounders, and eventually they go in. It's pretty terrifying, pretty horrifying. 
the French put everything into stopping the British getting through. They're using medieval aspects of warfare to fight. And again, we've mentioned this before in the Fort St. Elmo podcast, is that siege really comes down to whites of your eyes, very visceral fighting. And the French are employing caltrops, these spikes, they're using harrows, they're using chevaux de frise, all these sort of spiked obstacles to stop the Brits getting through. And even when the Brits create three breaches in the walls, the French are dropping barrels of gunpowder, just like Fort St. Elmo several hundred years before. They're dropping grenades, they're dropping wildfire, they're, they're firing muskets, they're using everything they can. And British casualties are very heavy and the, the dead pile up because the Brits are trying to get through the breaches, they're putting scaling ladders against the walls and eventually they break through. And then they go on a killing spree, just like the Ottomans uh, attacking Constantinople, just as so often happens, because they've got blood in their nostrils, they've seen their friends and comrades blown to pieces. And although one can't make excuses, you have to understand the, the, the killing lust, the blood lust, from that kind of hand-to-hand fighting. And they go on a rampage, and they kill several hundred civilians, the Officers who try to stop them are killed. Discipline goes out of the window. And for three days, essentially, the Brits are out of control, drinking and, as I said, on a rampage. Eventually, order is restored. Wellington, when he sees the British dead at the ramparts, he actually weeps. But it doesn't stop him hanging the ringleaders, those he considers the ringleaders. And once he's hanged them and discipline is restored, he can get on with his campaign. But a side story to all of this is that among the civilians is a woman and her 14-year-old sister, and she goes to the British officers, goes to the British lines to ask for their protection. Among the British officers is a major in the rifles, the great skirmishers of the Waterloo era, the Wellington era. This major is called Harry Smith, and he takes a shine to that 14-year-old girl, and two weeks later he marries her. Uh, I think child protection might get involved today, but these were different times. And he married her, and his wife accompanied him on his campaigns from America to Waterloo to India to Africa. And Harry Smith, and later Sir Harry Smith, because he becomes a baronet, goes to Africa and becomes governor of a province. And that is why Ladysmith was named Ladysmith after his wife, who became Lady Smith. And so 90 years or so after this siege of Badajoz, there was the siege of Ladysmith. So as we've said right from the start of our podcast, history is a fault line and it's our task to track it. Nicely tied up, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. There you have it, folks. Total war. The first duty of a government is to protect its people, not just the strongest fortifications, but by making the correct and brave decisions, or else you'll end up eating rats, or a lot worse. So it goes. My name is Tom Ashton, and his name is James Jackson. I will put images relating to this podcast on our website, 
bloodyviolenthistory.com and on our Instagram feed. Please subscribe to Bloody Violent History on your app, the one you use. It really helps others to hear about us if you leave us a review. Thank you and good luck. Thank you.